Would you take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, follow along as I read 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. As someone pointed out to me earlier, this is a 2-1-1-2-2-1 situation. With the Scripture passage, it was not intentional. I didn't realize it until I looked at the text this morning. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 21. Listen as I read, because these words carry the same weight as if Jesus Christ Himself were here this morning reading them for us. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased." And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the reading of God's Word. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we dive into our text this morning? Lord, this is Your Word. Your Word is profitable. Your Word is true. So we pray that You would come, Holy Spirit, now as we study Your Word. Would You... Would you Help us to understand. Would you take the truth and plant it deep in our hearts that it might transform how we live? Equip us for this. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our minds are incredible repositories of knowledge. They store everything from childhood memories to passwords for our online accounts, to what we're supposed to get in the next room. Well, most of the time what we're supposed to get in the next room. Did you know that it's easy for you to forget things that you come in contact with every day? Take fire extinguishers, for example. They are bright red. They're placed in very visible locations. Yet, there was a study done by UCLA several years back in an office building, and it showed that over half of the participants didn't know where the nearest fire extinguisher was in their building. That may seem like a large number to you, like over half of the people in an office building, they, didn't, they couldn't correctly identify where a fire extinguisher was, let alone the nearest fire extinguisher. For some of the participants, the fire extinguisher was literally outside their office door and they couldn't correctly identify where it was. This is something that they walked past every single day. 
It's bright red. It's not camouflage colored. We put fire extinguishers in places that are very visible, and yet it went right past these people's view. They couldn't remember where it was. This was something important, though. This is something critical. In the event of an emergency, that would be something that would be necessary. I'm sure none of the office workers thought they had forgotten, but they also didn't strive to remember either. It wasn't something that they had dealt with. It wasn't something that they had ever used before. And so, as a result, their knowledge slipped. Often as Christians, we can assume that we know the gospel and everything is fine without ever realizing that we have forgotten God. This happens often in the Bible. And and the epitaph over the Israelites in the Old Testament was, they forgot God. In Revelation, we read that the church at Ephesus had lost their first love. If our knowledge of God isn't put into action, if we leave it on the sidelines of our life, if we don't put it to use to grow in godliness, then we will inevitably forget. We won't remember and we will end up fumbling and losing the truth like the people of Israel. This is Peter's concern as he writes 2 Peter. We're a few sermons into our study of 2 Peter, and the series, I've titled this series, Know and Grow. This title highlights a theme in 2 Peter where Peter is concerned with what his audience knows and that they grow in light of what they know, that they put it into action, that they put it into practice. He's concerned about this because false teachers are infiltrating the church and twisting the truth. And Peter knows that if his audience doesn't remember, their soul is on the line. This concern of Peter's ought to be a concern for us this morning. Already we have seen that Peter is concerned that we know the truth and grow in light of that truth. He has outlined what that looks like already in our text. In in 1 Peter 1, verses 3-11, through we saw that last time. Peter is going to build that out in the text that we will consider this morning in verses 12-21. through So the title of our sermon this morning is Truth Worth Remembering. Truth Worth Remembering. Remembering. The central idea of verses 12 through 21 that Peter wants to communicate to us is this remembering the reality of Christ's imminent return is necessary to grow in godliness and enter the everlasting kingdom. Remembering the reality of Christ's imminent return is necessary to grow in godliness and enter the everlasting kingdom. As we consider truth worth remembering and this necessity of growing in godliness and entering the kingdom in light of Christ's imminent return, we see three points that will guide us along the way as we consider truth worth remembering. Notice first with me this morning, truth repeated in verses 12-15. through 
truth repeated in verses 12 through 15. As we start into our text in verse 12, we are immediately confronted with what Peter has previously said. In our text, it reads, for this reason. Or if you're using the ESV, it says, therefore. The point of all of of what they're trying to get across, of what these and other translations are trying to get across, is the connection between what Peter has said and what Peter is about to say. Whatever the connection is, he says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Well, Peter keeps bringing up these things in our text. Look back with me, if you would, to to 2 Peter 1, verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Verse 12, for this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. And then drop down to verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Well, what is the these things? It also ties in the the, the reason that he is writing to them. It ties into, has something to do with the eternal reward given to faithful believers. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 4 with me, He says, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Look also at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the these things ties into what has been previously said in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Basically, everything that Peter has written up to this point is included in the these things. It includes the great and precious promises. It includes the fact that you add to your faith virtue and knowledge and those other things that Peter articulates in verses 5, 6, and 7. But it also deals with this eternal reward. He wants to remind them of the entrance that they have or the attainment of this eternal reward that is the grand result of everything that God has done for them. He's given them everything they need that pertains to life and godliness. He's helped them to escape the corruption that is in the world through evil passions. And if they continue, if they persist, if they exert great effort to add to their faith these things that Peter articulates, they will have an entrance guaranteed to them in verse 11. An entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is for this reason 
that Peter's not going to be negligent. Because there is eternal implications for Peter to not be negligent in reminding them. So what has Peter already said that provides the this reason in Peter's argument? Well, he has talked about how we have obtained an equal faith with everyone who trusts in Christ. He has talked about how God has given us everything we need to live godly, holy lives. He's told us that God has given us great and precious promises that allow us to be a part of the kingdom of God. He is pressed in on the fact that in light of what we've been given by God, we ought to put every effort into growing in godly disciplines and living that reflects the fact that we're waiting to enter our new home. He's also told us that if we are diligent to pursue godliness, we will persevere and attain what God has promised to those who have escaped the corruption of this fallen world. So all of this forms the basis for Peter's persistent reminder as he nears the end of his life. Twice in these four verses, he wants to remind them of what he's just told them. He wants that truth to stick with them. Peter is not talking to brand new Christians here. Look in verse 12. These are believers who know and are established in the present truth. That would probably be most of you here this morning. Most of you would probably account yourselves as as knowing and being established in the truth of the Gospel. And Peter is writing to you. He's not writing to a new person who just trusted Christ to remind them. He's writing to established people. People who know it. People who have heard it over and over and over and over again. Why is he so persistent on reminding them of these things? Well, Peter knows his time on earth is drawing to an end. He mentions this twice in the text. In verse 14, he says, knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Verse 15, he wants to be careful that they always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So Peter knows that his time on earth is drawing to an end, and he wants this to be what the churches remember when he's gone. In a way, 2 Peter is Peter's last will and testament. This is what he wants you to get. He's rightfully concerned about what will happen to the churches once he and the other apostles are gone. What will happen to these churches when he and Paul and John and the other apostles die? What will happen to those churches? Will they continue in the truth? And so as Peter is calculating this in his mind, as he's contemplating his imminent leaving this world, What can he say? How can he point these churches in a direction that will keep them faithful to God after he departs? He wants to pastor them well. He wants to care for them. He wants to shepherd them. So verse 15 speaks to the longevity that Peter seeks for what he's telling his audience. He wants to ensure they always have a reminder of these things. 
What do you do if you want to remember something? What are you supposed to do if you want to remember something? Write it down. What we have here is Peter's writing it down for the churches that he's writing to. Isn't that kind of God to have written it down for us? We have writing in our laps this morning. We don't have oral history. We have written truth. If you want to remember something, you write it down. Peter is writing down and preserving what he wants for these believers to remember. The school year started this past week, and and as I was contemplating the beginning of the school year for many of the kids in this church, I thought back to my own time when I was in school. When they gave homework, and what did I do when the teacher wrote the homework assignment up on the board? What was my responsibility? It was to write it down. Because otherwise, I would be one of those kids who came into class the next day, and the teacher would say, okay, I'm going to collect such and such homework, and what? When did you assign that homework? I didn't realize that project was due today. When did you tell us it was going to be due today? Because if you want to remember something, you write it down. How many of you still know the phone numbers of all of your friends? I was thinking about this. I I think I remember, I know Amber's old phone number. I don't know if I actually remember her new phone number. I know my parents' numbers, and that's about it. If I had to call somebody in the church, I might know Pastor Harris's number, but I'd be scrolling through my phone looking for where it says Pastor Harris or looking through the phone where however one of you that I need to call. I have not remembered that because I haven't written down that phone number and, and remembered it. So Peter reminds these churches. He is writing to them so that they will remember. So that when they stand before God one day and God says, hey, how'd you depart from the truth? And they look at him and they say, wait, what truth are you talking about? We never got any truth. This truth. He wants them to remember, but he doesn't just want them to remember about academic knowledge or memory. He doesn't just want them to have a large knowledge base of God's Word. He wants the truth that he has shared with them to work its way deep into their life and experience. He wants them to to have the ultimate form of learning, and that is to live in light of what you've learned. To not just stuff your head full of facts, but so that your life would reflect what you have learned. And again, that's what Peter has just talked about in verses 3-11. through He is not going to be negligent to remind them always of these things. Even though they already know it. He thinks it's right as long as he persists in this life to stir them up, to agitate them by way of reminding you. Because he knows he's not always going to be there to remind them. So he wants them to always have a reminder of these things after he's off the scene. As we consider what verses 12 through 15 mean for us, 
Are you in danger of forgetting or not remembering the Gospel and its implications on your life? In school, or at work, or as you care for your family at home, whether it's little children or whether it's family members that you're caring for, how can you remember the Gospel and live it out? How can you remember? How can Peter's message stick with you? This takes self-control. This is, this is a fruit of the Spirit, this self-control that we need. So brothers and sisters in Christ, pray and ask God for grace and strength to work in you powerfully so you won't forget. God has given you everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. So pray and ask for His grace and strength that you might not forget. Pray and ask for grace and strength so that you might develop self-control, so that you might grow in these things that you know about God. Those of you who, who teach either the kids or other adults here at church, whether that's in Sunday school or beginner church or junior church, or ladies' Bible study, or men's Bible study, or, or any opportunity that you have to teach others, how can you echo Peter's desire to remind those you teach about what Jesus has done and its implications for living? How can you echo Peter's desire to remind those you teach about what Jesus has done and its implications on their life? Well, that's truth repeated, but that brings up the question though, how reliable is this truth that Peter is repeating and reminding and wanting his listeners to grab a hold of? How reliable is that? Is the return of Christ reliable? Is the Gospel reliable? And we turn now to verses 16-21. through 21. Because in verses 16-21, through 21, Peter is going to lay out two things that solidify and cement the reliability of what he is calling these churches and what he's calling you and I to stand on. So we've seen truth repeated. Consider truth witnessed in verses 16 through 18. Truth witnessed. Peter says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the mountain. In these verses, Peter seeks to establish the veracity and stability of what he has proclaimed in the Gospel to these believers and to you and I. How can I know that what you're telling me is true, Peter? Where did you get it from? And here Peter employs two proofs or witnesses that validate the truth of the Gospel. If you want to validate something, you need to do it in the presence of two or three witnesses. And here Peter invokes these two witnesses. In verses 16-18, through 18, in truth witnessed, Peter showcases the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And as we'll see in a few minutes, in verses 19 through 21, Peter showcases the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures. As we 
Consider this, though. There are two key contrasts in verses 16 to 21 that accentuate the upcoming battle with false teachers. There's going to be two battleground issues that Peter is anticipating that this church, that these churches are going to face with false teachers. And there's these two stark contrasts. One is the contrast between the cunningly devised fables and the eyewitness account. On the one hand, you have Aesop fable type material. Things that have been created. Things that have been fabricated. Things that have been devised in dark, cunning, tricky ways. But on the other hand, you have eyewitness accounts. Eyewitness accounts that are plainly seen, plainly visible to others. False teachers are going to bring in cunningly devised fables. And against that, Peter has eyewitness account. The second contrast is in verses 19 through 21, and it's pertaining to whether the Old Testament scriptures are man made. Look at verse 21 for prophecy never came by the will of man. Verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or origin. Contrast that with verse 21, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So against the cunningly devised fables and against the private origin of fables and supposed truth, we have eyewitness accounts. Seen with my own eyes. Heard with my own ears. Experienced by yours truly. And writings that claim to be divine in origin. False teachers are going to come in and they will not have divine originated documents. They will have man-made documents. They will have been fabricated in private places, in, in private origins. They will not have come from God. So as we consider verses 16, 16 through 18, the main idea of these verses is that we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the simple nitty-gritty truth that Peter is communicating. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's there in verse 16. And it's bookended by how they did not make known to it to them and how they did make it known to them. They did not make it known to them by following cunningly devised fables. They made it known to them by eyewitness account. The apostles did not follow cunningly devised fables, man-made stories, fantasies. They simply relayed what they saw in person. This is important for us to get a hold of this reality, and here's why. Because as followers of Christ, we don't base what we believe on Aesop or some other clever story writer. 
We don't go back to a storybook for our truth, for the truth that God has given us. No. We base what we believe on what was seen and observed by those who saw Jesus Christ in person. That is a reliable foundation. Well, verse 17 specifically speaks of an event that Peter himself witnessed. He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That, of course, is a reference to the transfiguration. Peter and several other disciples go up with Jesus onto this mountain and they're with Him and they see Him transfigured. They hear what takes place. What an amazing experience. But of all the things that Peter witnessed, why does he highlight this event? Why does he highlight the transfiguration? Why not the feeding of the 5,000? Why not the resurrection? Wasn't he one of the disciples who ran and saw the empty tomb first? Why not the moment when he rejected Jesus three times and then repented and turned to Christ? Why the transfiguration? Two reasons why I believe Peter highlights this event. It highlights the majesty of Jesus that Peter and the other apostles observed. They saw Jesus in a way that they never had seen Him before and that they never saw Him since. And when they saw Him transfigured, that was a prefigure to when He returns. That was, that was as glorious and majesty-filled of a time for them to see Jesus as they're going to get until Jesus Christ comes back in that same glory and majesty. So Peter highlights that. The second reason is because it provides an intersection between eyewitness accounts and Old Testament prophecy. And what it does is it establishes the deity of Christ in a powerful way. Because not only is Peter seeing it, but who's present when Peter sees it? You see Elijah and Moses transfigured along with Jesus, that, that they come along as well. And so there is this assurance that this in-lineness of what the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah representing the Old Testament, of what they had prophesied concerning Christ, they see that as well as seeing Christ transfigured before their own eyes. The transfiguration of Jesus also invests Jesus with majesty. Notice what it says in verse 17. He received from God the Father honor and glory. Not that Jesus did not possess honor and glory, but this is a peculiar honor and glory. The honor and glory that comes with one who rules and reigns. The honor and glory that would come with the one who came powerfully and, and is coming again in power and glory. He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
So the transfiguration of Jesus prefigures Christ's second coming. And that's what Peter and the other apostles made known to them. He made known to them the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he highlights the transfiguration because that is a central event that anchors the legitimacy of Jesus saying, I'm going to come again. How is it that Jesus is able to come again? Well, because he has all the power. He's defeated death. He's been resurrected from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he's coming again. There are some amazing Old Testament connections in this verse that testify, that buttress the fact that Jesus is who he claimed that he was. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Picking up on the words that were uttered from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Psalm 2, 7-9 through I will declare the degree. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of me and I will give You the nations for Your inheritance and the ends of the earth for Your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, Psalm 2 prophesying to the Messiah's rule and reign. You are my Son. echoed in the words that were uttered from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 18 specifically identifies Peter as an eyewitness in what he saw and what he heard, what he experienced. Peter is not interested in peddling secondhand accounts or concocted stories. He is relaying an event that he, along with James and John, personally witnessed. But what is the nature of this message that Peter and the other apostles shared? Is the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ looking forward or looking backward? This was something that was confusing to me because growing up as I was brought up and as I would, as I would have this passage read to me, I understood it to be looking backwards to when Christ came first in His incarnation and in His birth. He came in power and glory. But if we consider the context, Peter is not so much looking backwards as he is looking forward. He is arguing for the resurrected power of Christ and the impact it has in a believer's life. Turn, look back up with me at 2 Peter 1, verses 3-4. through Second Peter 1, 3 and 4. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. On what basis is that power actually able to help us live godly lives? On what basis is that power effective to carry out these great and precious promises? Well, because Jesus was transfigured and nobody else has 
ever been transfigured. Nobody else is qualified to be transfigured. Only Jesus has has received honor and glory from the Father. He is the one who has the power. He is the one who has conquered death. If we go back to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry. 1 Peter 1. We see this laid out for us in a powerful way. 1 Peter 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's power. Nobody else has ever been resurrected from the dead. That's significant. And it's because of that that He has begotten us again to an everlasting hope. It's through the resurrection. He's begotten us, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by what? The power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. When will it be revealed in the last time? When Jesus Christ comes. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are waiting for the return of Christ. Well, the false teachers are getting ready to come in and they're going to infiltrate and they're going to say, where is the promise of His coming? Is Jesus really coming? I mean, really, guys? Are you sure about that? I don't know. That's pretty suspect. He is facing claims from false teachers that Christ is not coming back. Go go forward with me, if you would, to 2 Peter 3. Second Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? They've forgotten. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Jump down to 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Peter makes this significant statement, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. On what basis is that going to happen? Because the same person who was transfigured and received honor and glory from God the Father is going to come back in power the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
based on these two things, Peter here is referencing the gospel message that was preached regarding the resurrected Christ and His second coming. This is specifically pertaining to Christ's coming back and Him coming back, not just to come back, but to come back as a ruling, reigning King. We did not follow cunningly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses. So Peter's admonishment to the church is, what I'm calling you to stand in is worth standing in. What I'm calling you to exert effort in and to push forward in is worth pushing forward in because what I'm telling you is going to happen will happen. Consider for a moment this message that Peter is preaching. That that Jesus came as the Son of God and He lived on this earth without sin. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again and has returned to heaven to come back for us later. And that we can be... We can be part of His family. We can share in the inheritance that He has if we trust in Him by faith. If we turn from our sin and accept the gift of salvation that Jesus offers. Friend, have you accepted that gift of salvation that Jesus offers? Has Jesus changed your life? If you are here and and Christ has never done that in your life, That is an experience that Peter wants you to share in. He wants you to have an entrance into the everlasting kingdom. He wants you to experience the forgiveness of your sin. So that that guilt and shame that you carry, you do not need to carry that anymore. For Jesus has carried it for you. Friend, if you've never trusted in Christ... You can trust in Him for salvation today. You can repent. You can turn from your sin. You can acknowledge that that is sin and turn to Him, turn to Jesus in faith, call upon Him for salvation, and He will save you. If you would like to do that today, let me encourage you, come and see me after the service. And I would love to open God's Word and share with you how you can trust in Christ for salvation Brother and sister in Christ, the significance of who Jesus is and what He accomplished elevates Peter's warning to continue in growing in godliness. The Christian life is not a flimsy ideal. It is a tough path that is filled with pain. It's filled with trials. It is also filled with an entrance into the everlasting kingdom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is truth worth remembering. But finally, we see in our text, truth confirmed. Truth confirmed. This is in verses 19-21. through 21. And in these verses, in addition to the eyewitness experience of Peter and the apostles, Peter brings another witness to the veracity of the power and coming of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament witness of Christ. The Old Testament witness of Christ. The prophetic word in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. 
This prophetic word is a general reference to the Old Testament as a whole. Jesus Christ, when He came, He fulfilled the roles of prophet, priest, and king that the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah. The Messiah, when He came, would be a priest. Jesus checks that box. The Messiah, when He came, would be a prophet. Jesus checks that box. The Messiah, when He came, would be a king. Jesus checks that box. He fulfills the Old Testament. This morning in Sunday school, we looked at a profound statement that Paul makes in Acts 26. For sake of time, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but this afternoon, I would encourage you to look at Acts 26, 19-23. And you'll see how Paul's message resembles this. He's not sharing anything other than what the Old Testament law and prophets pointed to. That's Peter's message. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, but it goes further than that. It isn't just enough to establish the legitimacy and authority of what Peter has proclaimed. No, Peter drives home the need for his audience to grasp and act on what he has said. Peter says that they need to heed what has been said. They need to heed the prophetic word. They need to heed the teaching that he and the other apostles have brought into the church. They need to heed it as a light that shines in a dark place. The word heed means to be in a continuous state of readiness, to learn of any future danger or need, and to respond appropriately. It is, it is not just a Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right, cool. It's a, yeah, oh my, I'll get in the car and be there in a minute. There's a big difference between those two reactions, isn't there? It is of critical necessity that the Gospel be remembered and lived out. So, Peter instructs his audience, you will do well. It is in your best interest that you heed these things until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. These two symbols point to the comfort and the reality of Christ's return and the entrance into the everlasting kingdom. When you're in a dark place, what are you waiting for? When you're waiting for the sun to come up, well, what comes up before the sun comes up? The morning star comes up before the sun comes up. It's a symbol of comfort and it is a symbol of surety. So in verses 20-21 through then, Peter draws our attention to a priority of the confirmed prophetic word. It It is of divine origin. This is not something that like we can take or leave. This is something that is critical and is necessary. It is of divine origin and communicated by the Holy Spirit to men who were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophetic word isn't a, isn't a fickle or a flimsy hope. This word is confirmed. It is sustained by the same power that God works in us for godliness. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, what we hold in our laps did not originate privately from human origins or come about as a result of man's will, but it came about through the Holy Spirit moving holy men of God to write God's words. One author puts it this way, by His Spirit, God inspired men to write down His very words. Yet they did so through their distinct personalities and manner of speaking or writing. So, so what we read when we read God's words are in fact God's words. Not fickle or flimsy or changeable man's words. These men, these holy men of God, wrote down what were God's words as they were carried along, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So consider the argument that we see in verses 16 through 21 again. Peter has, has a deeper purpose than simply defending his message. He's not, he's not trying to get everybody to say, okay, Peter, you're right, awesome, we'll make sure we follow you. No, Peter's deeper purpose is to preserve the honor and integrity of the God who made the promises and provisions for salvation in the gospel. He is out to defend God's honor and integrity because, as we will see next time in chapter 2, the false teachers are going to try to make men blaspheme, to tear down God's name. Rather than that, Peter here is trying to elevate, to honor, to glorify, to make great God's name. This culminates in the return of Christ. So for Peter, defending the legitimacy of Christ's return and the precedent for that is something worth fighting for. He's not merely just going to allow somebody to tear down the fact that Christ is coming back. No, because that is when ultimately God's name will be most honored and most magnified and most glorified. When all of us as His children are gathered around the throne, pulled from this world of sinful passions... And as we stand with our brothers and sisters from every tongue and tribe and nation, praising and honoring and glorifying our great God and Savior, that is when Christ will come in power and glory. And so that is something that Peter is, is defending, that he wants his audience, these churches that he's writing to, to remember. The return of Christ is not Meh. It's not something that is worth glossing over, that is so insignificant that we can just ignore. No, it's something that we must persist and remember daily. So as we close, consider these two points of application from this truth that we have seen. The return of Christ is the anchor for godly living. It's what provides the power. It's what ensures the promises will come true. It's what secures the entrance into the everlasting kingdom. How does the return of Christ impact your daily life? Not just like a, I wish God would come back today mentality. Because oftentimes, isn't that just like so we don't have to do something we don't want to do or so that we get out of a, a situation that we don't want to be a part of? And we'll, we'll utter, man, I really wish God would come back today. That'd be amazing. 
That's not what Peter's getting at here. How much does his return impact how you speak, think, and act? You may, you may utter at times, boy, I wish Jesus would come back today. But does your life betray that you believe Jesus will return? In other words, you, you say, I want Jesus to come back. But does your life evidence the fact that you really don't think He's coming back? Are there things in this life that are more pleasing to you and more satisfying than looking for the return of Christ? Yeah, I, I want Jesus to come back, but I want to wait until the Eagles win the Super Bowl this year. I want to wait until X. There have been numerous songs through the years that have, that have risen and fallen on the pop charts or, or any number of music charts that you want to find that have echoed that sentiment. Jesus is going to come back, but He's going to come back when... That's not what Peter's at here. The fact that Christ is returning ought to change how we speak and think and act. It ought to cause us with the power that God gives us to, to live godly lives, to give all diligence, as Peter says in chapter 1, to add to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And those ought not to be there in trace amounts. They ought to be abounding. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a sure and steady ballast in the Word of God to secure us as we grow in godliness and look for the coming of Christ. So brothers and sisters in Christ, go to the Word. Study the Word. Meditate on the Word. Find joy in Christ in the Word as you wait patiently for His return. May God give us certainty in what He has said, assurance in His promised return, and grace to live in light of that return. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. That it is powerful. It is authoritative. It is sure. The promises that You make in it will come true. Oh, Father, thank You so much for saving us by the precious blood of Christ. Will You help us to be diligent? Will You help us to be willing to exercise effort in these areas? Will You give us grace and strength? For without You, we can do none of this. We need You, Father. Please strengthen my brothers and sisters as we seek to follow you. We pray this in your name. Amen.